I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and this is the Downtown Writers Jam video podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We're coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on this uh, beautiful and lovely December day. Holidays are heating up. No matter what you celebrate, I hope that you are uh, maintaining your sanity and your empathy and your kindness because the uh, last couple weeks of the year can get a little out of control. Got some fun stuff today. Um, fun, like if you're a nerd like me and you like a lot of information coming at you. Uh, on the show is Elizabeth B. Splame, who we've had on the program before. She's been on the jam. Uh, she's got a new book out called Swan Song. And we started having this conversation and we actually talked. This is the first time I've ever had to seriously edit down the video podcast because we talked for like an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes. Um, and that's longer than the jam, but about halfway through, like we were having this one conversation that was very lovely and it was sort of very much like what I normally do. And then I asked about the book and she started going into all this history and this research and the people that the story was based on and who was real and who wasn't. And it was fascinating. I mean, 
we went down this sort of World War II historical hole, rabbit hole, um, that was just riveted. And if you're just listening, you're not going to see multiple times throughout the episode. I just like, I grabbed my face because I'm like, ah, fuck, like, how do I not know this? Like, how do I not know this? So it's really entertaining. And it's a, uh, uh in a way that these shows normally aren't. And the fact that we're really taking a deep dive into the research, not process, not any of that stuff, things that I don't talk about, we still didn't talk about. But we just started having this discussion about the history because I'm super fascinated by how writers have been doing research in COVID, particularly historical fiction writers who can't really go do the stuff that they need to do. Can't visit places and all that kind of stuff. So the genesis of this idea the research and the people are, are going to uh, knock your socks off. I promise you. Uh, so I've had, like I said, I had Elizabeth on the show before. Um, she wrote a series of uh, books, the blind thrillers, uh, the blind order and the blind knowledge, as well as devil's grace, uh, which was the winner of the when worlds count writing competition and released through green writers press. She is fascinating. And if you like, this is the stuff we talked about on the jam. So, it, like this, you're going to want to go listen to that episode as well. Uh, she got an AB in psychology from Duke and an MHA from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Spent 11 years working in healthcare before switching to careers to become professional opera singer and voice teacher. That, is, that did not end where you thought that was going to end. When she's not writing, she's teaching voice, classical voice in Rhode Island, where she lives with her husband, sons, and dogs. So if you haven't listened to that episode, the jam, the full one, there's that whole thing. And then this one is going to be a walk through the research and the history of her book, Swan Song. And there's a moment near the end where the book title, after you get through all of this stuff, you're going to just have one of those, holy shit, like this book, this book. So before we get to that interview, a little bit of business, uh, the jam our hour-long program comes out every Wednesday. The video podcasts come out Monday and Friday. A couple things you can do to help us introduce authors to new people. Think about folks in your life that like books. Tell them about our show. And then go leave us a review. Apple Podcasts, you can do that if you have an iPhone. If you don't have an iPhone, head to the Facebook page, the Writer's Jam, click on Review, do your business. You can check out the video podcasts at thewritersjam.com. You could always catch the audio wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're looking for books while you're at the website, we have reviews and a bookshop link that you can click to support local and independent bookstores across the country. Sign up for a monthly newsletter and you can support everybody on the Solid Listen Podcast Network. I think it's a dollar or five dollars a month and you get commercial free episodes, bonus content from everybody. Malls and Nicole are working their asses off and building this network out. So there's just a ton of stuff behind the Patreon wall. Well, listen, I hope that uh, the holiday season is treating you well. I know it can be hard for some folks. So if it is going well for you, make sure you're looking out for your friends and the people around you. And if it's not, reach out and talk to somebody. Um, this is not a time of year to try to do stuff alone. It never is, but this time is hard on people. So make sure you're taking care of yourself. Um, and letting other people take care of you, which is a thing that most humans are pretty bad at. For now, I hope that you will sit back and enjoy what is going to be a conversation that knocks your socks off, like I said, with Elizabeth B. 
explain. Swan song started, I didn't realize it. Swan song started for me probably 15 years ago. So I was singing with a, you know I'm a retired opera singer. So at the time I was singing with um, Central Pennsylvania Youth Opera, Children's Opera Company. Actually, I wasn't singing with them yet. My son was, his friend was in a show and he ended up singing with them. So we went to see the show. The show was called Brundabar. Uh, I knew nothing about it. Um, the director of the youth opera is a woman named Addie Applebaum. And I ended up chatting with her afterwards. She and I had met when I did a recital, long story. Anyway, so we went to the show and one of my voice students was also in the show. This voice student contacted a woman named Inga Auerbacher who lives in New York, um, who was five years old in Terezin, the concentration camp, where Brundabar was performed over 55 times during World wow. War II. Um, this woman, Inga, came from New York. She has a book out called, she's had it out for years, called I Am a Star. It's about her time, her three years in Terezin. And she spoke before the performance. And as you can imagine, it was, uh, yeah. I was speechless. I mean, there's nothing, it was, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. So that led me to read every single book I could get my hand on written by kids who were in that camp, who obviously were grown when they wrote the book. So I read all those books. I had always had a fascination with Ava Braun, Hitler's um, lover and then wife for 24 hours. And I, so I read a biography or two about her. Um, I read everything I could get my hands on online about the concentration camp and about that children's opera. Hans Kraschow was a Czech composer who, um, who wrote Brundabar and it was performed at an orphanage before World War II happened. When, when Jews were being rounded up, he was taken and sent to Theresienstadt in German or Terezin in Czech. And it was a camp, it was called the, not my words, country club of concentration camps. It was reserved for, it was actually literally referred to as a spa town initially by the Nazis. And World War I heroes and artistic people of note, Jewish, were sent to this camp. So this camp had compo composers, conductors, artists of all, of all genres and media. I mean, it was unbelievable the talent that was in this camp in addition to the World War I heroes. Um, Hans Krasha was sent to this camp. He, he smoked in half of the score of Brundabar and he, he recreated it by memory. And after recreating the score, it was performed more than 55 times. It's a story about two kids who, wanna, who are trying to go out and buy milk for their mother, but they don't have enough money. And so um, there's a mean organ grinder named Brundabar who is really loud. The kids are singing, trying to get some money, trying to earn some money to buy some milk, but the, the organ grinder keeps drowning them out. So they team up with a dog and a cat and some other animals to become a chorus. And then they end up raising enough money and they end up kind of bashing on Brundabar and he goes away. Brundabar, of course, was Hitler in this. And when Krasha wrote it, he acknowledged that. He had, he actually had, a, Brundabar had a little mustache, just like Hitler. And the kids during one of these performances at the very end of the performance did a Heil Hitler salute, an ironic Heil Hitler salute at the end. All of the kids in almost every performance were shipped east, every performance, and yet they still chose to perform. These kids still chose to perform. Same thing with 
Um, Raphael Schachter was a composer and a conductor. And he conducted the Verdi Requiem inside the camp 20 something times using a broken down piano and one score. So people learned this massive work by rote from one score and almost every time it was performed, they were sent away. <laughs> and yet people kept coming. And I just could not fathom that level of fortitude and courage. And what Schachter said before one of the performances, and this is actually in the book, um, it's a quote from him. I wanted to put an asterisk there because they were his words, but I didn't want to draw the reader out of the moment because it's such a powerful moment. And he talks about the power of music and how they're going to, the, the performers are going to sing to the Nazis what they cannot say, that, that there will be a reckoning. God is coming for you. So the idea of music as, as hope and this camp is unbelievable. I, you know, a lot of people, it's not one of the camps that people hear a lot about. Yeah. There were weekly lectures on art and music and there were weekly performances and these people are starving and they're still creating, including the kids. Some of these drawings and writings that these kids did, they were seven, eight, nine. It's unbelievable. One girl, I think it was Helga Weiss, I think, drew a map of the camp that I used as my basis for all the descriptions in the camp. It's, it, it's, it's mind boggling, yeah. the, the courage and the strength that these people found. So, so Ursula Becker, who is a rising opera star and is, is anointed the new diva in Berlin, finds out that she's a quarter Jewish. She starts dating Hitler's real life nephew who not many people know existed, falls in love with him. They become engaged. Hitler, who was a huge opera fan, becomes obsessed with her, not only because she's engaged to his nephew, Willie, but also because she looks exactly like his niece uh, who committed suicide after having an affair with her uncle. So that's the story. And, and Ursula ends up in this camp. So. Ursula and Willie fall in love and they decide, you know, we need to get out of Dodge. So they're about to sail to England and Ursula disappears. So Willie continues on to England and tries everything in his power to find her. And she, of course, is in the camp. So part two, he doesn't know that yet, but part two of the book is, you know, goes back and forth between Willie and Ursula in their chapters. Ursula trying to survive in the camp, doing what she has to to survive and Willie trying to find her. So that's the, so research. Oh, and I had written the whole first draft and then it was sent, unbeknownst to me, it was sent to an agent in LA and he wrote back and said, no one's ever looked at Hitler this way before, this side of Hitler. Willie Hitler, who not many people know even exists, his kids still live in Long Island, by the way. Really? Like, Yes, Hitler's grand nephews live on Long Island. <laughs> Anywho, that's a different thing. So um, I had written I'm sure the that's whole... not on their Christmas card every year. Well, yeah. <sighs> so um, uh, I had written the whole thing, and one of the questions that this agent had, who's wonderful, he said, um, "Why would Hitler be so obsessed 
with a Jewish opera singer. Now, the reality is Hitler was a massive opera fan. He had 200 seats removed in the opera house so he could have a better view. Everything he did with the war, if you look at how opera, you know, crescendos and decrescendos and how the music, you know, carries the emotion forward, he ran the war the way operas are created. He was all about drama and flair, something coming to a crescendo and then letting it fall again and let the pieces just fall into place before he rocked everyone's world again. It was, it was his MO, certainly early on. Even if you watch him speak, the way he whips the crowd into a frenzy and then lets them, it's, it's really amazing. He was a massive opera fan, but he also, his niece, Geli Raubel, Angela Raubel, his half-sister's daughter, he became her legal guardian when he was 40 and she was 23, and they lived together in Munich. And needless to say, it was, uh, it became involved, and um, they screamed at each other all the time. He adored her, but she didn't want to get married, plus, you know, he was her niece, ew. And anyway, um, September 18th, 1931, I think, she shot herself in the heart with his revolver. The Jesus. same revolver, by the way, he used to kill himself in the bunker. He also carried her picture next to his mother's in his suit pocket until his death. He was obsessed with this woman. And again, people kind of know about her, but not really, and this is all in the book. So Ursula, my female protagonist, the opera singer, she looks so much like Gelly that he's absolutely drawn to her. And then she's an opera star, so he's drawn to her. And then she becomes engaged to his nephew and that just, he pushes him over the edge. So that's the story. That's a beach read. Yeah, it's, it's heavy. It's, it's, um, and then after I wrote the first draft, so when the, this agent said, you know, why would he risk everything? Eh, it wasn't really risking everything. He was very established by that point. But it made me realize I, I had avoided this. I didn't want the book to be about Hitler. So I had not read that on purpose. But I went back and I read the very large book, The Life and Death of Adolf Hitler by Robert Payne. It is a terrible place to live in your mind. I could only read like three yeah. pages at a time. I didn't read Mein Kampf because I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I felt like I understood his mind enough to put really important information in there in terms of his internal right. motivations. And also act. like, do we give a shit? Like, do we care? Like, right. you know, like we always want your, your, your antagonist to be real and full but then there's some in real life you're like i don't really fucking like it's we're good yes and in <laughs> fact it's funny because i was recording um because i've you know i've recorded some of my other one of my other books so i had every intention of doing this audiobook and i recorded us a, a scene between ursula and hitler and I had listened to Hitler. It's tough to find some footage of Hitler when he's not screaming, yeah. but actually he had a very pleasant baritone voice. And so I was trying to imitate him. And you know what? I had a devil of a time doing it. And I realized it was because I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I don't want to do it. And I, it's the first time that's ever happened to me uh, as a character actor person. And um, anyway, so I decided, I still haven't really decided, but I think I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, because that's some real life evil, right? Like that's not yeah. in historical fiction, you know, obviously you're creating, you're using things and, but creating this other stuff. But like Hitler is, is a, 
it's such a thing. Yeah. Like there's just like, there just, there are some things in life. It's like, I don't need a multi-layered view of this because I don't really care. Like, and maybe that makes me a bad person, but I don't give a fuck why. Yeah. Well, and (laughs) you know, I, like I said, I didn't want the book to be about Hitler. So I ended up writing a foreword or preface to the reader describing Hitler, I think it's three pages, and a lot of it's about Hitler, but that's because I wanted to get it out of the way. Yeah. And the last paragraph is, this is not a book about Adolf Hitler. This is about the survivors. This is about honoring those people and moving yeah. forward and never forgetting what happened So and understanding so we can have it, never have it happen again. So um, literally, I mean, yeah, the first, <laughs> the first couple lines in the book is, Hitler was a monster, except he wasn't. He was simply a man, uh, no, a, a megalomaniacal sociopath who convinced millions to join his cult. Yeah. And so that's led to a bunch of blog posts, guest blog posts, like I'm doing a guest blog post at History Through Fiction. And it talks about why people are so always still so interested in World War II. And also, and part of that is understanding, you know, understanding how it happened and people are trying to, I think it's easy to dismiss him as a monster. Oh, he was evil, but it's not that simple right. because there were millions and millions of people that followed. So we really do need to try to understand this. And I know that, you know, and I was also very aware, then I'll I mean, actually let you ask a question, yeah, but I was yeah. also very aware when I was writing it, the political situation. Well, that's, that- yeah. I mean, like, it's not that hard to understand why we need to understand that. Right. Like, uh, I am yeah. not a Trump guy. I am from Trump country, but like the thing that is the worry, the most worrisome part of that whole thing is that people abandoned their own thought and became this cultish thing. And I'm like, this is literally how it happens. Yeah. Like this is not. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So while this was happening in our country, I'm reading the life and death of Adolf Hitler. And I'm like, oh, my Lord. Yeah. I, it was it was surreal. So, again, and in a pandemic and in the I house, was going like, to say, yeah, it's it was crazy. I would come out like the. Well, that was why I asked about the writing and the doing that stuff, because that stuff like being locked in is already hard enough as a writer, because when you're making worlds like you live in that world, that's the world like non-writers don't understand when you are writing, that is that's your reality. And the real world is not real. Like you have to bring yourself back into that. Like, all right, I got to eat and I got a family and. Oh God, the real people, I need to have relationships with those folks. Right. Yeah. Because you're so those, at least that's the way it is for me. And so to immerse yourself in that world, in that time and place without external stimulation is a mind fuck. Yeah. And you know, I hadn't really thought maybe that's why I acted the way I acted in BJ's. There's, there's a scene where (laughs) it's hundred percent why you did that. Yeah. (laughs) Where Ursula was thrown into the little fortress, which was the jail uh, there at the camp and I stopped writing for some reason for two or three weeks and I kept thinking I have to get her out of there I she's been in there for so long like <laughs> I gotta get her out of there so yeah that's true and there was probably some of that like you were living some of that because you're in your house and you're in your thing and like all of that together is <laughs> like I'm not I'm being dead serious like I know you're the, right the writing stuff is so it's very easy to be like, well, that's this, like that's fiction or it's whatever, like that's over here. But for me, that's reality. I can't write a thing until it's real up here in my head. Mm-hmm. And then I remember when I finished editing our book, our book was about fucking Dungeons and Dragons and about how it impacted the world of computers and all that. I was like, not, it's not even a, I came out and my friend who was painting my house said, how are you doing? And I burst into tears and walked back into the room because I was like, I don't know how I'm like, I don't even know. Like, what does that even mean? Like, how am I today? Like, what is like, you know what I mean? Like you're editing and like, I'm like, that question is too hard for me to answer because what 15 flavors of that do you mean? Yeah. So to be in a fictional world that is so mirroring what's what was happening at the time, you know, of course you buzz when you go out. And, you know, I, I had never thought of that, that I had left her in there for two or three weeks. Maybe I did that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's an excellent point. I know I'm going to end up referencing this uh, this interview in another interview because I'm going to be like, Brad King asked me, a re- made a really good point. And I always try to get credit. So I will give you credit. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's true. It's yeah, it's it's one of those. It's why I've been so fascinated talking to people that have like done stuff during a pandemic because it, it writing is so hard as it is. And then whatever world you're in, you're already locked in a place and then you are locked in another place. And it's just like the Russian dolls, right? Where you're like, yeah. and I don't think that writers and, and artists acknowledge that about the craft that they do, that you really go into another place when you're doing it. Yeah. And I think for me, that's why it's so important to be out in the world because then I can go out and I'm like, okay, uh, like I can breathe. And now I can just let the world interact with me instead of me interacting with the world. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, yes. I always describe writing as, as an alone 
process, not lonely, because I'm not lonely because, you know, your characters are your friends. It sounds crazy, but, you know, they're with you. They, yeah. you to your point, you know them. They're, yeah. they're coming from the inside out. So, but it is very alone. So I think someone asked me the other day if I would ever stop teaching voice. And, you know, I go from being alone in my head and on the keyboard to outside because yeah. when you're it's all about your body and it's all about interacting with another body and this is our instrument so it's not like we're holding a trumpet it's all about us yeah. right and, and your student and so that connection is I go from not being connected to anyone to being ultra uber connected yes. to somebody in a matter of minutes and out of your head right because yeah. you're in like you're experiencing what they're doing and try, so yeah. like you literally get to leave all that's what I mean you get to leave yeah. all of that behind Yes, it's that's true. And and I don't think that artists like we never sit down and are like, oh, shit, like I need to actually do this to be fucking healthy. Otherwise, you just live in your head and uh, zero therapists are like, what you should do is live in your head all the time. <laughs> right. Like that's <laughs> never been a piece of advice that a therapist. You know what? I think you should take up drinking. That would yeah. be helpful. Yeah, yeah. that's this is vodka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is vodka. Yeah. Well, now uh, Swan Song takes on a whole different, this sounds like a melancholy book. This is not a, this is not a book that's going to end well. Well, you're just going to have to read I know, it. but it's called Swan Song. So if it ends well, I'm going to argue with you about the name. <laughs> yeah. So originally it was con called Swan Song of a Jewish Diva. That was the original title, which I still love. But because there are a million Swan Songs that that, out there, it turns out. But um. So yes, she has a bunch of swan songs. That's all I will say because yeah. she lives in that constant yeah. of fear. Yeah. yeah. So um, absolutely. And interestingly, I'll go back to Hitler's nephews for a second. So, so William- <laughs> not a sentence that you say a lot. No. It, back to Hitler's nephew. Well, actually it is a sentence that I say a lot, but not most <laughs> um, So I had written, I don't, I don't know, three or four, not even chapters, maybe two chapters. And Kevin and I, my husband, were watching a documentary, World War II documentary, shocking. And they said something about William Patrick Hitler. And literally both of us turned to each other and said, who the hell's William Patrick Hitler? And I don't even remember the rest of the documentary because I was so, so the next morning I Googled him and I was like, what? William Patrick Hitler is Adolf's half brother, Alois. It's his son. William Willie was his name, and so Alois married a um, an Irish woman named Bridget Dowling, and they had one son named Willie who was raised in England. Willie Willie's father Alois came to Germany because he basically was a lout and gambled and never came back and ended up marrying bigamously in Germany and having a son named Heinz, who ended up fighting for the Nazis and got killed in a. Soviet prisoner of war camp. Okay, so that is a, a grand nephew that, or a nephew that died, one of Hitler's nephews that died. So Willie was of the first marriage, the non-bigamous marriage. Willie went to Germany in 1930 something to take advantage of Uncle Alf, as he called him, Uncle Alf's kindness. And he worked in a car factory and he worked in a bank. When Hitler said, you need to join the party, Willie's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And, and Hitler said, okay, get out. So he didn't kill him. He let him leave. But so Willie went back to England. Well, you can imagine when Willie came back to England, England was like, uh, you're not welcome here. Yeah. <laughs> With 
last name and everything that's happened. So Willie really had no choice. I mean, like he was pissed off. And so he wrote an article called Why I Hate My Uncle. No it was shit. picked up by Look Magazine, which was owned by William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came out on July 4th of whatever year, and it sold out in like two hours. On July 4th. Yeah, of course it did. Right. Yeah. So first was like, you know what? Why don't you come here? So Willie and his mother got on a plane or whatever and came to the United States and did an entire speaking tour about why I hate my uncle. No shit. All, and then in the end, I don't know how Willie met his wife. She was a German woman with a French name, really French name, but I can't figure out. He, and when he had come to the United States after doing the speaking tour, he changed his last name to Stuart Houston, Stuart Dash Houston. Two interesting points about that. One, hyphenated names were not super common back then. So I felt like if you're really gonna change your name to something American, why don't you make it like Jones or Smith or whatever? But the other thing is that Stuart Houston was actually one of Adolf Hitler's earliest benefactors early in the party that helped him rise to chancellor. He wow. was a huge financial backer of Hitler. So why would Willie, he said he just liked the name, but I just find it odd that he, so his kids, he had four boys, lived, he settled on Long Island, had four boys, one passed away. The remaining three who are all in their fifties are living in the same house where Willie lived with his wife and his boys. And he ran a medical facility, a medical like lab, blood processing or whatever out of the house. But he ended up fighting for the Allies. He, after he finished the speaking tour, he enlisted in the Navy and fought with the Allies, went back. And I think up that I knew this. That, like, now that you said that, I'm like, I feel like I've heard that story before where Hitler's nephew fought for the, I think I've heard, I think that's the thing that I know about him. And when he went to get like his uniform and they said name and he goes, Hitler, and the guy goes, yeah, right, and I'm goring. You know, like it was <laughs> yeah. like, <sighs> So, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not, but not, there's, there are no books. I found zero books written about this man. I read everything I could read on the internet. His boys who still live there on Long Island, there's been a play written. Everything that's in my book is on the internet. Yeah. Like there's nothing that I discovered. I wish I had. But um, they, I mean, because of course, right? Like if you're, if you're of that family, you're not like, well, we need to set the record straight. Like you have to want to just disappear from history. Well, and interestingly, they all decided they made a pact. This is what I read. They made a pact that they wouldn't have kids. And yeah. I said, that, I said, well, yeah. it's obvious, right? I said that to someone recently and she said, why would they do that? I said, uh, because they don't want any Hitler blood to like any. Yeah. They, yeah. You want to disappear from history. Like I, that makes everything about that makes, I feel that deeply in my bones. So their father in this book in Swan Song is a hero. And, you know, he, I, he, from all accounts, lived quietly and was a great neighbor and ran his business and just wanted to live his life like his kids do. And I respect that. Yeah. Um, but in, in this book, Will, it once I saw, so this was the really weird thing. The, the next morning after hearing his name on a documentary, I Googled him. His birthday was the same day that I had given my Ursula, my female protagonist. Oh, really? Yeah, it was the, and I, I literally smiled and I was like, 
okay, clearly he needs to be in this book. And so he became her love interest, which was not the plan. Yeah. But it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the book is where they meet because he does not like opera. And she, of course, this is what she does. Yeah. So it's this push pull in the beginning with them. And I just, it's one of my favorite scenes even now. That's crazy. Like that's, yeah. that, that is a, well, I can see how come you could write that during the pandemic because that would have occupied a tremendous amount of brain space of just like, yes. holy shit. Like yeah. the weird rabbit hole of that stuff would just be yes. so sort of like, it's not really research, right? Like it's so odd. And you're like, what the fuck? That yeah. like every day sort of had to be like, what, what, yeah. what? Yeah, no, you're right. And the other the interesting thing, like all these rabbit holes, um, for example, my friend Addie Applebaum, the one who was the director of the youth opera where all yeah. this started, I asked her if she would read the book. She actually read both versions of it um, and ripped it apart in a good way. You know, she would email me and she'd say, um, you know, Germans never would have eaten that in that time. This is the wine you should have at their dinner, like that kind of detail. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one thing that she said, I had Willie taking a phone call from Hitler in 19, oh, I don't know what it was now, like, 42 i think in the book because it's in different time periods like it starts in 33 then it goes to 35 or 38 anyway she said a phone call never could have gotten through well that led me to you know uh really because that was a big deal that phone call was critical in the story and so um i started sending out notes to anybody like nextdoor.com does anybody can anybody provide i mean i really truly was desperate and i talked to somebody in missouri um, who uh, is a, a curator, I, I don't remember, somebody knew somebody. Long story short, I realized that if it was gonna take one person away from the story and reading it, I had to rewrite it. <laughs> so I created a spy that didn't exist in the first draft. And it's so much better because <laughs> Willie ends up going to this pub, this dark pub to meet this guy. And he has a face-to-face -face conversation with one of Hitler's spies that's wedged into London. So it's really, it was so much stronger, that kind of detail. Another example is um, I had Willie and Ursula get on Hitler's plane to fly to the Berchtesgaden, to, to the, um, to the Berghof, his estate. And all of a sudden I was typing like Schroeder on the piano, like madly in my zone. And then I was like, oh right, Hitler's plane. I should probably look that up. So I look up Hitler's plane. Well, which plane? At the height of his power, he had like 38 or 52 planes. And I was like, oh. So that led to two days of research. And during my research, I found out that um, cabin pressurization, because I have them having a conversation on the plane, occurred in 1938. Luckily, this happened to be taking place in 1938, so I decided that they would not need oxygen masks because Hitler would want the most up-to-date technology on his plane and therefore would have had cabin pressurization. I mean, I could go on and on, I won't bore you, but I could go on and on with that kind of detail that stopped my writing cold so and led to usually between six hours and two days of research. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh... You're lovely and wonderful, and I'm glad that we got to do this again. Uh, and this also, like, I, I I feel like I'm saying this more and more on the video programs. Like, this is way longer than it's supposed to be, but it was so goddamn fascinating. I'm like, well, we're just gonna keep going. 
<laughs> Thank you. It's it's always my pleasure to talk to you, my friend. It's I know it's like it's it's a lot of fun and like this. Uh, even though the story is heavy, like it's the background of that is fascinating. Like it's it, that's it's just fascinating. And so uh, I'm well. And sorry to interrupt you, but ultimately, you know, my books are about I'm driven by light and compassion and kindness and all of that jazz, um, all that jazz. But this, uh, you know, the transfer, the, the, the ideas of choices and consequences of choices are critical in this book. Yeah, also I mean, obviously of a sliding moral scale. Yeah. If a woman sleeps with a guy, you know, it's considered and gets paid for it. It's prostitution. If you sleep with someone for a winter coat just to survive or steal some bread, is that so this sliding moral scale is also Ursula goes through a severe transformation. Um, she doesn't know she's Jewish and her sister, who I haven't even mentioned, her sister is is based on Ava Braun. She is Ava Braun. Everything that happens with her sister, except for the fact that her sister is a violent prodigy, everything that happens with her sister is based on real stuff. And it's all in the book. At the end of the book, I have a note to the reader yeah. that talks about what's real and what's not. So um, at one point, her sister, who's like 13 at the time, when Ursula finds out she's Jewish, her sister says, very real, very innocently, you don't look Jewish, you don't act like you're Jewish. And Ursula says, what does that mean? And her sister then describes what a Jew is based on what she's heard for the last five years growing up under a Nazi regime. Yeah. And so, you know, Ursula undergoes this transformation where she's a diva. She needs no one. She is self-contained beauty, right? And as she goes through this transformation of physical deformity from being beaten and things, she realizes that there are people, there's a community if she would just allow herself to accept it and in turn give back. Yeah. So there's this underlying transformation that's going on that is based on kindness, compassion, love, empathy that I haven't really talked about, but you know, hopefully that comes through in the book. I'm told it does based on readers' comments, but you know, readers have to decide. Yeah. Well, it, this has been lovely and uh, I'm so excited to read this book. Uh... I've said it so many times on the show, like historical fiction was never really my bailiwick. And then uh -huh. the pandemic hit and now I read rom-coms, thrillers and historical fiction. Yeah. Like this is my new, like that's been the jam that I've been in. I'm like, yeah, these are all things that I can escape into that I don't have to fucking deal with the world. So I'm really excited yeah. to pick this up. Uh, and, and thank you for spending, like we spent a lot of time. Thank you for spending time with me during the holiday season. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm not sure when this is running, but Friday. Oh, okay. Well, um, if people want to um, go to my website, elizabethsplainauthor.com, there is still time to order books. All four of my books are out. And there's also something called a roadie reader box on there that has uh, my book, Swan Song and or Devil's Grace in it, along with handcrafted items made by Rhode Islanders. There is oh, a B-clef chocolate You did that bar. before, didn't you? Mm -mm. Oh, this I mean, is it's new? Been, it's been running for a couple months. Okay. Uh, the candle called Swan Song in there. There are tissues with Swan Song on it's when you cry. And there's a beautiful bookmark that has a swan on the end. And this is all available on my website. You can go to my website, elizabethsprinauthor.com. It's, it's the front picture. It's the front picture. You I'm looking at it right. I'm literally looking at oh, it right now. Oh, thank you, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> and well, thanks you, for your time. Yeah, no, this is great. It's lovely talking to you. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing it again and picking up the book and all of that stuff. 
All right. Thank you, my friend. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, too. Well, there you have it. That was Elizabeth B. Splain. Her book, Swan Song, is out right now. Uh, and I told her off air. That was it's these video interviews are getting longer and longer than they were intended to be. And it's because shit like that happens. Like that was a fascinating interview. Taking a deep dive into the history of the book, which I was not expecting. And I could have talked about that all day. I hope you enjoyed listening and watching as much as I loved having that conversation before we get out of here. Just a couple reminders. Uh, if you like what you heard, do us those two favors. I talked about at the top of the program Tell your friends about us, particularly those people that like books, and leave us a review either on Apple Podcasts if you have an iPhone or the Facebook page at the Writer's Jam if you don't. Don't forget to check out all of the other programs on the Silent Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Silent Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. Don't forget these video podcasts come out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel every Monday and Friday. You can also find them over at the Writer's Jam, and you can catch the audio version wherever you listen to the Downtown Writer's Jam. And that program is out every Wednesday. With all that stuff happening, the easiest way not to miss anything we do, get yourself subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at the Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.